But first, to technology and disorder. While digital technology has created more conversation, innovation and revolution, it's also unleashed many dark and destabilising forces. How to unify governments, business and civil society so as to build an open and free digital order is a pretty serious challenge for the global community. Our next guest says we need to get cracking in creating a new Bretton Woods-style system for the digital age and has some stark warnings about technology and the threat it poses to democracy. Dr Samir Saran is head of the Observer Research Foundation. Now, that's a leading think tank based in Delhi, India. He curates the Ricina Dialogue, India's annual flagship platform on geopolitics and geoeconomics, and is the founder of Sci-Fi, India's annual conference on cybersecurity and internet governments. He's also the author of four books. And Dr Saran has been in Australia with the Lowy Institute this past week, speaking at conferences in Canberra and an event in Sydney. Welcome to Saturday Thank Extra. Thank you, Dr. Saran, you've been warning that technology is posing something of an existential threat to democracy, that if democracy is to survive, technology will have to be tamed. How so? Um, you know, Catherine, I say this from a sense of seriousness. Society and democracy, uh, political regimes and our international partnerships have all kept a pace with each other. In many ways, our constitutions and our international agreements reflect our social realities of that moment. Uh, they were shaping. We as people were being able to shape, uh, in many ways, the arrangements that managed us and governed us. Technology is changing this balance, is changing this equilibrium. Technology is changing social modes. It is changing who we are as individuals. It is changing how we express ourselves. It is aggregating grievances. It is creating irrational mobilizations. And it is challenging the social conditions that allowed institutions that manage us to emerge. And in that sense, uh, individuals and social institutions, political institutions, international institutions are on a collision course. And we have to ensure that the pace of technology does not tear apart the carefully constructed arrangements of the past. Mm. I know that you see India and the world, and I, I guess Australia in all of that, as being caught between what you call big tech and red tech. Can you tell me what these ecosystems are and what is worrying about those? So for me, sitting in India, which is a dense multicultural society, country, uh, we had certain norms of social behavior. We had a freedom of expression with reasonable restrictions, which means we did not allow each other to poke each other in the eye all the time. When uh, big tech, American technology arrives in India, it carries with it the American absolutist freedom of expression uh, codes and, and, and frameworks. And suddenly all of us are saying all sorts of things to each other. Uh, and we are beginning to see the dimensions of social conversations change. Now, it doesn't mean that we should not have absolute freedom of expression. I, I'm not a votary for denying anyone the absolute right to express themselves. But certainly we have to have certain conditions uh, and certain contexts to those conversations. Uh, we have not as societies been able to get there, while technology that allows us to behave like that is upon us. And that, that's creating a disturbance. You know, you are continuing to see the polarizations and mobilizations in the U.S., in India, in other democratic countries, in, in free societies that are uh, pitching us against each other. And, and in some sense, I think there now needs to be a rethink 
on uh, the, this new social uh, arena where uh, our daily conduct is being mediated. The role of the platforms, uh, the algorithms that manage them, the biases that promote certain kind of uh, uh, expression over others, all need to be, uh, in some sense, rethought, relooked at, and made more accountable to to uh, the constitutions that we swear by. Mm. So, and uh, the, the, uh, on, on the other hand, you have the red tech, right? So this is big tech. This is mm. like tech which comes from the free world. Mm. And that itself is in its uh, evangelical approach to American-styled uh, societies is is not only challenging American society, but also others. On the other hand, you have red tech, the Chinese tech, which uh, is produced, promoted, and distributed with the sole purpose of furthering uh, China's agenda, the Communist Party of China's agenda. Mm. And uh, for them, uh, the Communist Party is supreme. Uh, your agency is irrelevant. Your data belongs to them. And that is a different kind of technology offering on the horizon. And therefore, countries like India, Australia, EU, and others have to uh, work with the big tech companies bring them to um, a, a more sensible space that can allow all of us to participate with greater agency and responsibility. So listening to that, it seems that you have issues with both big tech, the American side of things, and red tech, which you've confirmed is the Chinese side of things. And I know that you've gone so far with respect to red tech as arguing that China should be banned from social media altogether. I mean, is that a practical solution and even possible it's clearly a solution that not many folks would agree with at the outset. But let me try and explain why I said it. Uh, in the world today, diplomacy uh, and engagement between different communities and countries happens online and increasingly it will be digitalized. Now, in this situation, if the Chinese were to be present in all our social conversations but were to deny us from participating in theirs, uh, which is their own versions of uh, of Twitter and Facebook and, and, and the internet itself, uh, it would be an unlevel playing field. It's like allowing China uh, embassy in Australia and the Chinese preventing you from opening one in their country. Would any country allow this? We have reached a situation today where the Chinese participate in our public sphere, they participate in our democracy, they uh, uh, criticize Albanese, they criticize Morrison, they criticize Trump, they criticize Modi, they criticize and, and sometimes even catalyze criticism of all our political uh, discussions and political systems while we're hiding behind the great firewall of China, not allowing us any uh, entry other than curated and controlled into their public discussions. Mm. Now, I'm fine if the Chinese participate in our uh, arenas, if they allow us to do the same, as long as they have this uh, uh, one directional access uh, and ability to game sometimes and to uh, pervert sometimes our discussions without us having the ability to do the same to theirs we are creating a, a dangerous situation. Mm. I will come to who you think the arbiter of the most optimum internet or platform platform might look like. But I know you've been speaking here in Australia and you made note of grey zones in one of your discussions and mm -hmm. how touching on the point there that Chinese operations are attempting to shape public opinion in different geographies. And you make note of that particularly in societies which are small and homogenous. Do you have examples of them achieving results? So Chinese have been able to build a huge upswell in our own neighbourhood. For example, uh, if you were to look to our west and you have uh, uh, Pakistan or to our south and you have Sri Lanka, you were able to see how they were able to 
purchase influence and acceptance from uh, the largest swaths of those two countries. Uh, both of them countries which have a certain dominant community, they were able to uh, inveigle themselves within those uh, power brokers of that community and were able to purchase influence irrespective of political outcomes of that country. So irrespective of which party came to power, everyone wanted China. And we've seen them do this through, uh, of course, the proliferation of Chinese uh, electronic hardware, but also now Chinese uh, applications, TikTok and others, which continue to um, uh, infuse uh, more youngsters from that part of the world to embrace uh, the Chinese proposition. Um, now, these are not small countries. These are large countries which have uh, governments that are selected by a community. And if they could influence that community to, uh, to favor China, they were able to retain a degree of stranglehold over the destiny of that particular country. Mm. For smaller islands and, and smaller countries, it's even more stark. Mm. Well, influences are coming from both sides. Big tech, um, you were telling the conference here in Australia on technology order and disorder that Google, Facebook, Amazon decide who you date, what you eat, what you choose, how you vote and what you think. Now, how dangerous is this level of control? Because those com com companies, they're all American companies and not necessarily answerable to Australian laws or Indian laws and not necessarily working in a local context. And you make note that these companies might not be partisan. What sort of problems do you see that creating? So my challenge with big tech is slightly different to red tech. Uh, big tech is primarily serving its bottom line. So if uh, hate speech sells better, uh, we will see algorithms being biased to allow hate speech. If humor sells better, they will bias it to allow humor to travel further. Bottom lines decide the norms of communication for the algorithms that run these platforms. And in some sense, uh, uh, the incentive for stable, uh, healthy societies is not necessarily part of the bottom line framework. But having said that, these companies are increasingly not only the, the curators and platforms of conversations and, and social interactions, but they are also influencing our decision making. Uh, they are also providers of our lifeline requirements from, from uh, you know, the connection to the net, livelihood, uh, since, the, since digital is now literally going to offer us all that we need, uh, they are the gatekeepers for our access to our lifeline requirements. Now, in the past, these were the functions that were the prerogative of the government. Uh, governments were elected. If they did not provide these services, they were rejected. If, if they were incompetent uh, to offer these solutions to their citizens. If they were able to do this in an efficient manner, they were re-elected and sometimes uh, endorsed by, uh, by, uh, as models of political governance by other nations. Mm -hmm. Now, when private sectors start stepping into the shoes of the government, then boardrooms have to be under the same degree of accountability. Mm. Do we elect the, the chief executives of these companies? Do we have power over the board? Can communities reject them for, say, breaching our trust of, or, or, or a big data leak or for an algorithm that went faulty and, and, and led to uh, unrest in, in certain communities or certain parts of the country? We have to have an accountability framework that makes these boardrooms more, more responsive to uh, the citizens they profess to serve. And by the way, they're not our enemies. They're part of the solution. So we will have to work with them. Um, last time around, uh, any 
big uh, corporations had this kind of power over us was uh, in the early 20th century uh, standard oil and that standard oil was dismembered because it had so much control over our lives and all those uh, uh, all standard oil did was to control the subways and the energy systems these folks control everything mm. well, and yet we are not having a sensible debate over the undue influence they have over our lives we have to rethink our relationship so a lot of this solution it seems would come down to regulation who regulates it how do you regulate it i mean i read brad smith president of the vice chair of microsoft australia said at davos that the way forward is through principles but whose principles will frame the regulation you know i agree with brad and i think he is one of the smartest thinkers uh, in this sector but brad still uh, comes from a very american view of the world and american principles are the underlying uh, ethic that uh, many of these corporations want to promote but now if american principles were so acceptable then why would countries have their own constitutions and therefore the challenge is not about just the principles that he mentions but a, a multiverse of principles that different geographies are comfortable with so i think the first challenge is that can we admit that there is still a requirement for context for culture and for national boundaries if we agree to that then we have the second order challenge of how do we ensure technology that has similar origins can serve different societies differentially and i think that's the second order uh, problem now none of this has not been done before and i can give a simple example we had movies that were not permitted in certain geographies they were not uh, released there they were released in other geographies where they were permitted in some geographies they were given a adult rating in other geographies they were a, 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 they were available for the for the general population so we have done this before with other media with other products with uh, even consumer goods where we have had certain statutory warnings when uh, different uh, geographies have appraised them differently we will have to be less lazy we will have to be quicker and we will have to come up with a framework where we are able to serve communities who are diverse i think the internet must not be uh, the way of homogenizing the world the internet must be the means of celebrating the diversity of the world mm. the diversity of the world cannot be celebrated by one law for all mm. diversity of the world can only be celebrated when contexts matter we know that in 2023 the un is aiming to agree on this global digital compact i mean what is this and will it have teeth so like anything with the un uh, this is likely to be the beginning of a global conversation not at the end point that we want to achieve i don't think there is enough buy in and i don't think a un led process has enough teeth uh, simply because of the differences that exist today within the un system the us is a divided lot. the un is a divided lot and any un agreement will be suboptimal where we will come up with grandmother and apple pie statements uh, effective regulation has to be done in smaller groups mm. i think like minded countries have to promote a certain view of the internet india eu partnership for example uh, could be one of those where both of us have fairly large populations fairly large econo- uh, economic footprints and if we could agree on a uh, on a via, via media and attract the americans and others to join that that could be one way of doing mm. it uh, the other medium could be d10 uh, um, or a or a club of democracies who seek to preserve a fairly um, open and liberal ecosystem without uh, 
infringing on the cultural context of different countries, mm. uh, that could be another club that could be thought through. And I think there is a initiative for AI and, and governance of AI, which is based on this concept of uh, 10 democracies working together. Yeah. Something I think Canada, Australia, UK have all signed on to and India as well are part of. Mm. So it's... I think plurilateralism seems to be, it seems to me to be more efficient than a UN-led uh, uh, charge on this, but a UN-led charge has the advantage of crowding in interest. If UN takes up something, more people become aware of it and interested in it. Mm. So if the global com- compact could result in having serious deliberations and progress, it would be uh, a, a job well done. Yeah, it's interesting to me because I, I listen to you talk about these uh, bodies and these groups and it's very much so at a macro high-end um, level. What about when you look at the, the micro, the grassroots, where do the end users, the people who are using the internet, the civil society that is being driven by the internet, where should they sit in this discussion? So I think they are perhaps the most neglected lot, the ones whose lives and bedrooms are under threat by technology, have little voice in the governance of the internet. And this multi-stakeholderism model that has been promoted by many countries in nothing more than lip service, simply because most folks who need to speak at these uh, discussions can't afford to be there. And those who have been given tickets and sponsorship by uh, others to fly into these conversations have an obligation to to their funders. Uh, We will have to find a way of democratizing Uh, these conversations. Uh, I think the global south and certainly even within the global south, uh, the the marginalized communities who are just tuning in to the digital world must have a say. Mm. And and, and therefore, I think what you have asked me is, uh, is, is the enduring challenge for internet governance. How do we bring diverse sets of voices from different parts of the world to have a say as we shape the new Bretton Woods or a new Bretton Woods-like structure for the future. Mm. Well, I think given the pace of technology, if we were to have this discussion in six months' time, it might sound even more different, but we are out of time for now, Dr Samir Saran. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Catherine. Pleasure to be with you. And Dr Samir Saran is head of the Observer Research Foundation, a leading think tank based in Delhi, India. Up next, the solar suburb and the huge number of renewable projects coming online on Tackling Transitions. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.